I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. Well, words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know. It's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are a last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football year-round, nobody cares. Basketball year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and lately it's been all about Batman pretty much all the time. Basically, there's a movie coming out soon, and that pretty much is that. So, because of that, and because of the fact that I'm... I don't know, I mean, I'm I'm pretty excited about this movie, you know? So far, like what I've seen of it... There are, there are a couple of things that kind of have me a little bit concerned, but for the most part, kind of excited for this movie. And so because of that, I thought it might be kind of fun to do a bunch of episodes that are all about Batman comics. And so in relation to that, I've been working my way through this epic, epic, epic mega series. It's all about Batman comics. So there you go. And... I guess in relation to that, what I'm going to be talking about today, I'll give you my origin story with this comic in just a little while, but for right now, the comic that we're going to be talking about today is Batman number 370. Now, for those of you listening, that might seem like a sort of random choice. Of all Batman comics that I could possibly talk about, why would I talk about that one? Right? Well, as I say... There is a story to that. It relates to my origin with this comic, and I'll circle back to that momentarily. But for right now, this is Batman number 370. Cover date is April 1984. On sale date is January the 12th, 1984. Cover price is 75 cents. I shall repeat that. Cover price is 75 cents. Writer is Doug Minch. Penciler is Don Newton. Inker is Alfredo Alcala. Letterer is Ben Oda. Colorist is Adrian Roy. And editor is Len Wein. Story title is Up Above the Sin So High. Story synopsis is as follows. Robin disrupts a couple of thugs working for Dr. Fang. No, seriously, that's the name of their boss, Dr. Fang. 
Somewhere in Gotham City, a dude decided the name Dr. Fang would strike terror into the hearts of his enemies. I guess he thought Professor Stab just didn't have the same ring to it. So anyway, Robin disrupts a couple of thugs working for Dr. Fang, right? As they trash a video arcade. Remember video arcades? I do. Anyway, the arcade owner has apparently been ordering his video games from the wrong distributor. The right video game distributor, one can surmise, is Dr. Fang. So Robin beats the shit out of both of them, and so they make a run for it. They speed off in their limo, which is the official getaway vehicle of choice. In a crime organization like Dr. Fang's, I'd imagine that a limo is probably standard issue to all of his minions. Anyway, Robin pursues the hoodlums on foot until they reach Dr. Fang's super-secret hideout located at 923 Rupert Street. I don't know this to be true, but I assume that Dr. Fang has been known to shout, Quick, boys! Back to our super-secret hideout located at 923 Rupert Street. The police are on their way! Anyway. So Jason pursues them back to their super-secret hideout located at 923 Rupert Street, right? He memorizes the address, which is to say, 923 Rupert Street, figures he's probably seen enough by now, and decides he can let Batman take it from here. Because, <laughs> after all, if Jason were to try taking down a criminal mastermind all by himself, <laughs> he just might get himself killed or something. <laughs> uh, eh. Anyway, if Jason had stuck around a little while longer, though, he just might have spied with his little eye Sergeant Harvey Bullock showing up for a super-secret meeting with Dr. Fang at his super-secret hideout located at 923 Rupert Street. You see, boys and girls, Bullock is pretending to be a dirty cop, trying to get into Dr. Uh, Fang's good graces, in order to earn some extra cash. Because, let's face it, being a cop in Gotham City isn't exactly the fast track to fame, fortune, and mansions filled with beautiful women. Anyway, so Dr. Fang introduces himself as the terror of Gotham's underworld. No shit. He really says that on page 10, panel 5. Check it out for yourself. Anyway, so Dr. Fang and Bullock hatch their super-secret plans in Dr. Fang's super-secret hideout located at 923 Rupert Street. Next day, at Wayne Manor, Jason wakes up from an afternoon nap to discover that Bruce is back from his trip to Montreal and he's arrived rather early. Jason tries like hell to tell Bruce all about what went on the night before at Dr. Fang's super-secret hideout located at 923 Rupert Street, but in true sitcom fashion, Bruce keeps interrupting him and telling him that whatever he has to say is going to have to wait until later because Alfred's daughter, Julia, is going to be arriving at Wayne Manor any second. Later, during dinner, Bruce casually flirts with Julia, and it seems like he's just about ready to try infiltrating her panties, but Bullock arrives just in time to exposit some crucial story information because, guys, it's page 13 in this comic, and we need to start winding this sucker down pretty soon. Anyway, Bullock announces that he met with Dr. Fang the night before at Dr. Fang's super-secret hideout located at 923 Rupert Street, which... Kinda sorta pisses Jason off since he's been waiting hours to tell Bruce that very thing. But, as with the rest of this issue, 
Bruce ignores Jason, which is never a bad policy. Anyway, Bullock announces that a two-bit crime lord like Dr. Fang is pretty sure that he can gobble up legitimate businesses, even gigantic conglomerates like Wayne Enterprises. Now, rather than laugh, Bruce tells Bullock that he'll cooperate with setting up a sting operation for Dr. Fang however he can. So Bullock excuses himself, and then Bruce and Jason excuse themselves to the Batcave where they can switch to Batman and Robin so they can head over to Dr. Fang's super-secret hideout located at 923 Rupert Street. An hour later, Dr. Fang gets a tip-off that Batman and Robin have been spotted near his super-secret hideout located at 923 Rupert Street, so he, meaning Dr. Fang, arranges for all of his thugs to wait in hiding for the dynamic duo to show up, after which they'll spring the trap. To make things fair, though, they won't use guns. Because they don't want to attract police attention. Because the police will undoubtedly come a-running if they hear a bunch of gunshots going off in the middle of a crime-infested ghetto at 2 o'clock in the morning. Anyway, Batman and Robin arrive and the fight's on. They beat the piss out of a bunch of Dr. Fang's henchmen. Dr. Fang himself is actually kind of reluctant to leave his super-secret hideout located at 923 Rupert Street, but eventually he really has no choice. Robin intercepts him at his getaway car. Another limo, of course. Anyway, Robin intercepts him at his getaway car, but Dr. Fang gets the drop on him and is but mere moments away from biting Robin with his fangs. Which is the only logical thing to do. Why shoot the little brat in the head with a shotgun when you can bite him, am I right? Anyway, so Dr. Fang is but mere moments away from biting Robin with his fangs when Batman sees what's about to happen, tosses a batarang at Dr. Fang, smacks him in the noggin, and forces Dr. Fang to make a run for it. Bullock arrives a short time later for his meeting with Dr. Fang in Dr. Fang's super-secret hideout located at 923 Rupert Street, and honestly doesn't even know what to make of all the carnage and shit that he sees on the street with all of these dead, no, not dead, but all of these uh, incapacitated and unconscious thugs just laying in the street. And he wonders just how the hell Batman and Robin could survive a fight with that many people. But hey, he's Batman. Anyway, so the end ends relatively happily with Robin promising to tell Batman the full story about his adventure the night before at Dr. Fang's super-secret hideout located at 923 Rupert Street, back in the Batcave. The end. So, what did I think? Well, guys, this issue is auspicious to me for reasons obvious and maybe not so obvious. I'm thinking probably primarily not so obvious. To take it from the top, just to look at this cover, this is, it actually does give a pretty good indication of at least some of what this issue is all about because it shows Batman and Robin hanging around the scummiest alley you've ever seen. And they're, they're basically in the process of beating the tar out of an entire horde of street thugs armed with boards that have nails through them because this is the 80s. And so basically all street gangs look kind of like a Michael Jackson video. Anyway, so this is one of those covers that I don't think it's going to go down in anybody's list of greatest Batman covers there's ever been. But 
this was a pretty eye eye catching cover for me back when I was I guess I was about nine years old. And what happened was my parents, for some reason, basically they sent me to uh, my uh, my grandparents' house and just not for the entire summer, you understand, but sent me to my grandparents' house for, I want to say it was like a week or two weeks or something like that. And the idea was I just hang around with the grandparents and just kind of shoot the bull. For some reason, uh, my parents, and I don't, I don't really pretend to understand like the totality of this, but for some reason, my parents thought I would find that a lot more interesting than, well, I don't know, spending the summer in Houston, the fourth largest city in the country. Why hang around here when you can go to small town Texas and do fuck all? So one really good thing, though, did come out of that trip and Basically, my grandmother, I woke up, not early, but relatively early one morning, and I was just sitting at the uh, table in the kitchen, flipping through some comics, and at that time, it was pretty much all Batman all the time. I remember that, for some reason, that was the summer I wanted to spend reading as many Batman comics as I possibly could, and do that for as long as I possibly could. And so, basically, I was sitting there, it was in the morning, munching uh, this was Cap'n Crunch peanut butter crunch cereal and flipping through some Batman comics when my grandmother wandered into the kitchen and she just saw me there, right? And she knew that I liked comics, but it's like the way it goes in my imagination, it's like what she said to me, it's like this had never occurred to her before. But she said, she looked at my comic book and she said, Hey, wow, you like comics? Say, there's a comic book store just up the road from here, so if you want, you and I can head on up there later and you can check things out. And, guys, it in case I, I've never actually said so before, up to this point in my life, I'd heard of comic book stores, but I'd never actually been to a comic book store. Hell, I'd never even seen a comic book store before. And so... The idea of actually visiting one, I don't know. It's its hard to put into words, but it's like, are, are you serious? Yeah, let's go. And so, sure enough, we piled into the car and headed over to the comic book store. And I think Michael Bailey talked about this in some episode or another of Views from the Long Box ages and ages ago. But basically, he said that for a comic book fan, at least of our generation... The first time we walk into a comic book store, it's kind of like that moment in Die Hard when the thieves finally get the vault to cycle open. They walk into the they walk into the vault surrounded by all those uh, non-negotiable United States uh, Treasury bearer bonds, and the chorus swells, and it's it's just this incredibly revelatory moment because they fucking did it. You know, they finally arrived and they, they, they basically got it. You know, they, they got their, I don't know. I, 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 the way it goes in my memory, what they were searching for were, or, or what they intended to steal were the bearer bonds, but maybe my mind is playing tricks on me, but fucking whatever the, the music swells up and, and it's that same kind of sensation for people of my generation, the first time we walk into a comic book store, because guys, so many of us were just, we were accustomed to 
getting our stuff at uh, Walden Books or at gas stations or, or or places like that. But the idea of going to a to a store specifically intended to sell comics. It's like the idea of that, it's just too big for comprehension. But that was that was pretty much my feeling the first time I walked into that. Let's face it, it was a sort of mediocre comic book store in the grander scheme of things. But the first time I walked into that, that comic book store, I just thought, at last, I'm home. And it's true. I mean, they had stuff on the shelf that wouldn't arrive on newsstand shelves until the following month. They had this vast catalog of back issues and all this other stuff. And it's it's almost like, where do I even begin with this? You know, this is this is too big. And, so, and if this seems kind of unexpected to any of you, you know, the idea of some small podunk town in small town nowhere, Texas, having its own comic book store, I ask only that you remember that, guys, this was the summer of, I want to say it was 1991. And, you know, the reality is, so I guess I would have been 10 at that time. So the reality is, guys, you know, we're getting into, if we're not already there, we're very close to that, you know, the whole comic book speculator craze that went on in the 90s. And yeah, it was totally possible that you might have a comic book store, even a couple of comic book stores in this, in this small town that my grandmother lived in at the time. And so, yeah, it's completely realistic. And so one of my fanboy buttons at this time, especially was basically anything to do with Jason Todd. There was something about number one, the idea of there being a second Robin, but there was also just something about the idea of there being a casualty in the Batman family that, you know, this isn't like the TV show that maybe sometimes people go out and they get hurt or they get hurt even really badly, or maybe, maybe they get, they get killed on the job. You know, they get killed in action. And there was just something about that that was just so big and mythic in my mind, you know, just like the operatic scale of it. And what I wanted to do, because I didn't really completely understand I guess the structure and continuity of the post-crisis DC universe. I thought that the Jason Todd who had been murdered by the Joker had pretty much been running around with Batman since 1984 and, or 1983. And that's not really the case. The fact is the, the version of Jason Todd that died was the post-crisis bratty rebel Jason, you know, and the, I guess the version of Jason Todd that first saw print, this was the pre-crisis Jason Todd. And the thing is, I mean, this is an iteration, this is probably the iteration of Jason Todd that it's like time forgot or something, because most people, it's like they don't want to even acknowledge that this version of Jason ever even existed. But that's maybe a separate discussion for another time. Suffice it to say that I didn't understand all of that stuff. All I knew was that I was really into the idea of Jason Todd and what happened with him. And and I guess just the myth of, 
of Batman comics of this time. And, and like I said, I had a kind of imperfect understanding of it. And so I thought, well, there's no way I can afford a copy of Batman number 368 because at least at that time, Batman number 368, which is to say Jason Todd's like officially becoming Robin, that typically went for the price that I found. It was typically like 20 bucks as a back issue. And then as now, I just think that is way insane. Okay, there's no... Guys, even now, even after all of this Red Hood fucking bullshit, you know, with Jason coming back from the dead and all that stuff, 20 bucks for Batman number 368 is fucking insane, okay? And I'm not going to pay that. And as it happens, I will never have to. So, anyway. So, I knew I couldn't get that issue. And I couldn't find a copy of Batman number 369. But hey, they got Batman number 370, so that's kind of close, right? So, as it happened, I had five bucks burning a hole in my pocket, so I plunked it down and brought Batman number 370 home with me. And guys, it needs to be said that when it comes to Batman comics, you know, especially when I was a kid, and I guess to a minor degree now, but really definitely when I was a kid, you know, my preference when it came to, when it came to uh, Batman artists we're talking about the likes of Dick Sprang or, or uh, Neil Adams or Carmine Infantino or Norm Brayfogle. Um, you know, basically, you know, guys like that. Basically, the guys that had work reprinted in the greatest Batman stories that uh, ever told or else were doing Batman comics on a monthly basis at that time. You know, like I say, Norm Brayfogle, Jim Aparo, uh, you know, guys like that. And so reading this, you know, checking out all of this Don Newton art, you know, I'm not normally like a big fan of of Don Newton. There's just some kind of sensibility about his art that just doesn't really work for me, you know? And that is a that that's an opinion that I pretty much stand by in the majority of cases. But what I'll say is that there's something different about his art right here in Batman number 370. It's actually really good. You know, this is never, I mean, Don Newton will never be my favorite Batman artist. I mean, that ship sailed a long time ago. But, you know, he's, at least in this issue, he's pretty good. And overall, he's not terrible. I'm just saying that whatever it is that I look for, from a Batman artist, Don Newton is not that thing. But like I say, his work in Batman number 370 is actually really good. I like it. So I guess maybe you should get used to hearing that as we work through this issue. But literally, starting from page one, we get this kind of glory shot of Robin, and he's standing on a rooftop, basically checking out the action around him. And there's really no action to be seen because... Gotham is just kind of quiet tonight, but it's just this really neat illustration. It's, it's Robin. He's standing all alone solo in the moonlight and his cape is flapping around in the, in the wind. And he's got this, I don't, it's not an overly comic booky superhero type of pose, but it is a little bit of a pose and a kind of weird looking one too, since 
you would think his that you you would think that he's so off balance he'd just fall over, but no, apparently not. But I happen to think that part of the strength of of page one really comes down to Adrienne Roy with her coloring because it really does give this image just some really nice atmosphere to it. You know, you got the moonlight shining off of Jason's back and his side, his left side, and it's just a really well done image. You know, it's really well composed and I dig it. And plus there's like a ton of detail and hatching and cross hatching and all this other stuff that's happening on this page. There is a lot of detail crammed into this page and I get it. You know, uh, the first page of any comic, it really needs to get your attention because it, it's like clickbait in a way or because it's incredibly beautiful and well done as this one is, or so, there has to be something about page one that makes you want to read the rest of the issue, you know? And, you know, I think that had I been a Batman collector at the time that this issue hit the stands, I probably would have been interested in what happens next in this issue based on the power of the art on page one. So kudos to Don Newton. Anyway, Moving right along, this is actually something that we don't really see a whole lot of. It's basically Robin swinging down to the street. But the thing about it is he's not swinging down from, he's not swinging down to the street from like 30 stories up. He's maybe two or maybe three stories up and that's it, you know? And so he's basically just gently swinging down to the street and you can almost kind of picture it being just a very slow and kind of graceful arc that he swings off of the building with and just lands gently on the pavement. And I just like the idea of that, you know, the idea that, you know, Batman and Robin, yeah, they spend a lot of time in, uh, I guess like the, the downtown area of Gotham city with these impossibly tall skyscrapers and they're swinging around through the air there and all that. But they also head to, you know, the more urban living areas and patrol those areas too, you know? And yeah, they're on rooftops there as well, but the rooftops are not as far removed from the street as those skyscrapers are in downtown Gotham City. I just like the idea of that, you know? I mean, I like the visual of it, but I like the idea of it even more. So anyway, really well done. And I, and I like that. And another kind of neat thing is right here on page two in uh, panel three, I just like the coloring on this that the bad guys are, they're, they're colored. It's a very monochromatic panel. They're basically colored uh, blue because they're in the shadows, but they have a little bit of moonlight or maybe it's a street light uh, shining down on them. And so there's a little bit of a yellow coloring to them. It's just, I, I, I like, I, I like art like that. I, it looks really good when it's done that way. So anyway, getting into page three, that's when the wheels start coming off of this story for me a little bit as an adult. I mean, as a kid, I loved this issue, but as an adult, instead of just absorbing things and enjoying the story, enjoying the art, there's something that happens to you as an adult where you kind of, it's like you have a little bit more of a critical eye on certain things. And one of the things that I just, I find it very difficult to believe of the many things that I find very difficult to believe. 
The first thing that I find very difficult to believe rears its ugly head right here on page three, where we see these these thugs basically smashing the crap out of these uh, video games and pinball machines and all that stuff. And these are the most well-educated, well-spoken, and articulate street thugs you have ever seen. For example, in panel two on uh, page three, one of the thugs says, yeah, very stupid, in view of the fact that uh, you was politely informed that Dr. Fang has recently acquired his own vending machine operation. So apart from the poor grammar there, he's speaking really well for somebody that I think we should assume is not very well educated. And then his buddy says, yeah, Dr. Fang likes to see a profit on his investments, and Dr. Fang will do just about anything to ensure such a profit. And it just goes on from there. I mean, they'll use ain't, and they'll use improper grammar and other th and other things, but they're also, I don't know, there are some points when they're actually a little too eloquent, and I, I don't know, it's, it's not like it drags me out of the story or ruins the issue for me or anything, but it's, I don't know, just this dialogue, basically all of their dialogue, it just needs another pass. You know, somebody needs to take another look at this. So, anyway. On page four, Robin swings into action, and then from there, the fight's on. And this is one of those, one of those pages that it kind of gave me a little bit of a wrong impression of Don Newton as an artist, because a lot of the work that a lot of his work with Batman, at least that I'm familiar with, it's just not the same caliber as all this stuff. But this was the first Don Newton art that I had ever seen. And so I thought, wow, you know, Don Newton, wow, he's he's really good. I mean, look at the angles that he's using on on these pages in this fight. You know, look at uh look at the way that he's staging the action and and all of that stuff, and the martial arts moves that, that Jason Todd is using. You know, that looks not perfect, but it's it's probably above average, at least as far as 1980s comic book art is concerned. And this is just one of those things that when I started looking around and, and checking out other Batman comics by Don Newton, it just kind of made me think, wait, is this even the same fucking guy? Because Batman number 370 has got a lot of cool art in it, especially like the fight scenes. But I look at some of the earlier stuff, it's like, what the hell happened? You know, he must have undergone some incredible evolution as an artist, some incredible growth. Because the stuff that we see in Batman number 370 and somewhat going forward is just miles ahead of a lot of that earlier stuff that he'd done on Batman. So it's just, it's really weird. So anyway, from there, we basically get Robin... He's not even chasing these guys at first, but he he basically does he basically pulls a Marty McFly and rides on the back of a truck, which just I guess by coincidence is following Dr. Fang's thug's limo. And there comes a point when he has no choice but to uh hop off of the truck and chase after the limo on foot. 
And, you know, if you think about it, I mean, how badly would that have to suck? You know, chasing these these thugs for, for block after block after block after block on fucking foot. I mean, uh, Batman probably would have taken them out back at the video game arcade. Nightwing, he would probably have his motorcycle with him, so he could just follow them on his motorcycle back to their super secret hideout located at 923 Rupert Street. But Jason doesn't have any of that. He So he pretty much has no choice but to chase after them on foot. And all of this kind of raises the question of, if he doesn't have a car to get around, how the hell did he even get to this part of town to begin with? But maybe I'm overthinking it. So anyway... He makes a mental note of where the super secret hideout is located, and basically, we're not sure how, but because it's never really explained, but we basically discover that he's going to head on back to uh, uh, the Batcave and call it a night. And I kind of like the idea of that. You know, I mean, there's a lot to be said for the superhero to decide, you know what, fuck it, I'm going in there, I'm going to kick some ass, and won't Batman be so impressed with me? But it... It seemed to me like it was a really mature decision on Jason's part to back down and wait until he has uh, Batman with him before trying to take Dr. Fang out. And this actually kind of created a little bit of a continuity goof in my mind. Not a continuity goof, but a little bit of a conflict in as much as in Batman comics at the time that I first bought this issue, not when it first came out, but when I bought it in 1991, it was generally accepted that one of the things that got Jason killed was the fact that he was just too headstrong, you know? He didn't he didn't always look before he leaped. And so there came a point when, you know what? The Joker used that against him, you know? And so what I didn't really understand at the time was how is it that he knew to keep his distance in this issue and yet didn't know to keep his distance when he was going after the Joker? And like I say, there's a very simple explanation for that. Specifically, Crisis on Infinite Earths. It's just that I didn't know that at the time. You know, I was a kid and I didn't understand the way that the DC universe had been restructured after Crisis. You know, I didn't know any of that. So it. I wouldn't go so far as to call this a continuity goof, but it just seemed like there's a conflict going on here. And it took me, actually, it took until I understood the significance of Crisis on Infinite Earths before I really understood the fullness of all this, you know? So anyway, getting into page nine, and then obviously also into, into page 10, we see Dr. Fang uh, doing his uh, workout and... He does boxing, and he also throws in a couple of martial arts moves. And what I think we're supposed to take from this is that Dr. Fang is one tough SOB, you know? He's not to be messed with, you know? You mess around with him too much, and he'll kick your ass and all that. And I get it, you know, this guy's supposed to be dangerous, he's deadly, you know, all that stuff. But it's just so hard for me to take a guy seriously when his name is Dr. Fang, you know? I mean, he's got the fangs, he's got the Dracula cape, 
And my sense, and I'm no expert, but my sense of Dr. Fang is he's actually, as much as anything, he's a performer. And he's a performer, I guess, in the same type of vocabulary as Dick Grayson. You know, Dick Grayson was a performer in the circus. And if memory serves, Dr. Fang was a pro wrestler. But they're not that different from one another when you really think about it, you know? And so in a world that's filled to overflowing with superheroes and all this other stuff, you know, maybe somebody like Dr. Fang is just, I don't know, to be expected, I guess. But it's just, guys, I'm not going to lie to you, it's just so hard for me to take this guy seriously. I mean, what's dangerous about this guy, you know? Like, really? I mean, somebody like Two-Face, he'll flip a coin and the possibility of him blowing your head off with a 45 caliber semi-automatic pistol, basically what it comes down to is which side of his coin uh, comes up after he flips it, you know? The Joker, he might kill you just because uh, he doesn't like the sound of your voice. You know, um, Poison Ivy, she might kill you just because, hey, you're a man, or I'm a man, and she doesn't really like men all that much because, well, whatever. But Dr., seriously, Dr. Fang? Like, really? That's the guy's name, Dr. Fang? It's like, really? You know, whatever. So, anyway... And and I don't want this to sound, I guess, like too modern day kind of like hipsterish. I mean, even when I was a kid and I was reading this issue, I was like, whoa, the, the guy's name, like the big bad of this issue is Dr. fucking Fang. <laughs> like, wow, really? Dr. Fang, ooh, you got me quaking in my boots, dude. Let me tell you, that's scary. So anyway, and I guess it doesn't help that Nobody, literally nobody in this issue is afraid of Dr. Fang. Maybe that's got something to do with it. You know, if there was one guy that, like, pissed his pants the second Dr. Fang entered the room, maybe I'd take the guy a little bit more seriously. But when nobody, literally nobody else in the story seems to be afraid of Dr. Fang or even takes him all that seriously, it's hard for me as a reader to take him seriously. And I guess that's the point, so... Anyway, whatever. Moving right along, though, we get this kind of awkward moment on uh, pages 11 and 12 where Jason obviously has something that he desperately needs to tell Bruce, but the story needs Jason to need to tell Bruce but be unable to tell Bruce. And, you know, I get it. That's an effective way of telling a story. But... That's just not the way that most people converse with one another. I mean, if somebody else has some something to say, they'll say so, and then you listened, you know, or you will listen, you know. And I don't know. I mean, it's just it's I guess a good way to to amp up tension and build drama and all that. But it's just this is just not the way that people react to one another. But whatever. So. One of the kind of neat things, though, about Bruce on 
on this page is, or these pages, I should, I should say pages 11 and 12 is guys, I was huge into the first Tim Burton Batman movie, especially at this time. I loved that movie, but I also loved that take on, on Bruce Wayne, you know, this kind of scatterbrained, not ne'er-do-well, but he's, he's one of those guys who's never completely there. Even when you're talking to him and you're, you're maintaining a conversation with somebody and you're, you're making eye contact and all that stuff, he's still not completely there. You know, his attention's always split some other way. And that's kind of the Bruce that we're seeing on, on these two pages. But the other thing is he actually kind of looks, or at least he dresses, kind of like Michael Keaton. You know, he's got the turtleneck going and all that. And it not so much his look. He actually has a little bit of a Ray Liotta kind of look for most of these pages. But at least the way that he dresses, it just seems very Batman 1989 to me, you know? And did even when I was a kid. I just liked that, you know? And... I related to it. I connected with it on that level. You know, the the part of me that was in love with uh, the Batman movie loved seeing Bruce in a turtleneck on, on these pages, you know? So I didn't necessarily need to see Batman adopt an all-black Tim Burton-esque kind of costume in the comics, but I did like the idea of certain other aspects of the movie being used in, in comics. And I could have used... You know, I wouldn't have minded when I was a kid seeing, <clears throat> I guess, that type of characterization for Bruce Wayne. You know, the kind of scatterbrain type Bruce Wayne that we saw in Batman 1989. And really, I would say somewhat even more in uh, Batman Returns. He, That guy that he's just not totally there. Even when he's looking you right in the eye, he's still not completely with the conversation. I just like that. It's really well done. And again, the turtleneck definitely reminded me of the Batman movie. So anyway, moving right along, Bullock shows up. And it, it needs to be said, guys, that I didn't really know anything about Bullock before reading this issue. I don't think Bullock was really like a major part of Batman lore, really until the animated series came along and kind of enshrined him into continuity. And after that, you know, Bullock became a little bit more of a mainstay, but I didn't completely grasp the idea that Bullock was just playing pretend in this issue. He wasn't actually a dirty cop. I didn't really get that when I was a kid. I thought that he was, he seriously was a dirty cop and he was trying to basically make extra money by working for Dr. Fang. And so to see Gordon, not Gordon, to see Bullock portrayed as virtuously as he was in Batman the Animated Series, that was a real punch in the balls for me as a Batman fan. So much so, in fact, that I actually went back and reread this issue. And yeah, son of a bitch. You know, he really he really was one of the good guys. He was just pretending to be a dirty cop. But it's just, it's weird sometimes that those little misunderstandings that creep in when you first read something, how long they can stick with you. And I guess how jarring it can be when the truth kind of settles in, you know? So anyway, well done is my point. Really well done. <sighs> Moving right along, Batman and Robin swoop into action outside of 
Dr. Fang's super secret hideout located at 923 Rupert Street. And I've said over and over again that one of the things that I just love seeing Batman do is beat the snot out of people. You know, I love watching Batman kick some ass. And we get a maybe not as much of that as I might have liked, but we get a little bit of that in this issue. You know, Batman and Robin, they're, they're uh, swinging around, they're jumping off of cars, jumping off of rooftops, and they're, uh, they're giving people judo chops and punches to the face and ninja kicks, and they're doing like, uh, I don't, like Aikido throws, and people are going flying all around, and they're doing all of these, all, all of these ninja moves, and it's just, it's just cool. I dig that. You know, I love, I loved it when I was a kid, and I love it now. I just like seeing Batman beat the crap out of people, is what I'm saying, and you know, there are, you know, there are certain things as like a Superman fan that I just love seeing. One of the one of my favorite things to see as a Superman fan is Superman flying through the city of Metropolis. You know, I just love that as an image. You know, that's one of my favorite things to see at all when it comes to Superman, you know? And when it comes to Batman, I just like seeing him, you know, beat the snot out of people, you know? And we get a fair amount of that. But in the process, you know, and this is on uh, page 20, you know, Jason makes this uh, joke where this is in panel two. He says, looky here, an opportunity to exhibit my dazzling circus skills. Ah, yes, the roar of the crowd, like music to my ears. And, you know, when I was first reading this as a kid, I thought it was just you know, Jason basically being silly and making jokes and making light of the situation, you know? But, you know, obviously as a more seasoned Batman fan, I realized, you know what? This is kind of literal here in that Jason really was in the circus. I mean, when people say that his origin story is a kind of a knockoff of Dick Grayson's, well, there's mojo to that. You know, I mean, they were both in the circus and and, you know, there are some differences, admittedly, but guys, come on, don't be an idiot. You, you have to be stupid to overlook the similarities, you know? So Jason is actually being very literal here. And so anyway, I don't know. It's There's no real deeper point to that. I just want to throw that out there. So getting into page uh, 21... Jason tries to get the uh, get the drop on uh, Dr. Fang. And this is probably the only semi-cool thing that Dr. Fang does in this entire issue. He basically, I guess, you know, Jason sort of jumps across the top of uh, the roof of the limo and tries to do this ninja kick. And Dr. Fang grabs him out of midair, spins him around, and basically does a body slam right to the ground. And again, you'd kind of expect him to be able to do that if he at one point used to be a wrestler. And so we get this really neat moment on uh, page 22 where Batman is in the middle of kicking the snot out of two different guys at the same time, sees what's about to happen, reaches into his utility belt, chunks a batarang across the street, socks Dr. Fang right in the face with it, and 
you know, it's like all of this is one fluid motion. I mean, you could just picture Batman sees what's about to happen, punches that dude in the face, continues uh, the arc of his punch, reaches to his utility belt, and just tosses uh, his battering. It's just really... It kind of says something about how conditioned Batman's body is, how conditioned his reflexes are, and all of that, that he can respond to something that fast. You know, it's it's one of those things where it doesn't make... It's not one of those things where he's like Bat God, but it does kind of say something about the 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 I guess mental and physical plateau at which Batman operates is just <clears throat> it is just so far above even like Olympic level athletes they just cannot keep up with Batman you know he is probably the single greatest athlete or would be the greatest athlete on the entire planet you know except he doesn't go out for competitive sports you know but that's the level of discipline that that he's pushed himself to that's how extensive his training is that he can spot something like that so quickly and then respond uh so quickly and then throw his battering with such perfect accuracy all while he's beating the snot out of two different guys at the same time really well done i love it and more or less, I mean, that's pretty much the end of the issue, you know, and, you know, I, ages and ages and ages ago, and we're talking like, I don't know, like 10, 15 years ago, I, I, I did do a complete read through of this era of, of, of Batman. And so I did get, I guess, the full scope of this Dr. Fang story as retarded as it is. And I just, I haven't really retained all that much of it. So I don't really remember where this is going. What I can say, though, is I don't love my chances of ever coming back to this in the future. Maybe I will. You know what? Maybe at some point I'll I'll have occasion to come back to, I guess, this vintage of Batman comics. But, guys, I'm just going to be honest with you. I've never really been all that hip on, I guess, the early to mid-80s Batman. I've just never really been able to get my mind completely around that Batman. I mean, there are times when... This issue, like in terms of its tone, it kind of reminds me vaguely of the type of tone that Joel Schumacher was going for with Batman Forever. But there are other other Batman stories that were coming out around this same time that it's just like, what the fuck was that? You know, I mean, it's not so light as to be like kind of like fun Joel Schumacher type Batman stories, but it's not really like the darker, grittier stuff of of the Frank Miller era and it's not really like that late 60s it's not even a, a dark Batman that we saw like in 1968 and 1969 it was more like a really dimly lit Batman that we saw in like the really late 60s with Irv Novick and I forget the other guy's name and you know there's just a weird milieu that the early to mid 80s uh, Batman just sort of fits into that I've just I don't get into as much as I do maybe other parts of of Batman's publishing history. Like, basically, a lot of stuff that was coming out in the 70s, I tend to be on board with. But it's a little harder for me to grasp the 1980s stuff, the early to mid-80s stuff. Just because some of the story ideas, guys, were just a little goofy. Like, seriously, what the hell is going on with some of this stuff, you know? And... 
I don't know. So I'm not trying to be disrespectful of, uh, of, you know, if this is like your favorite version of Batman, like this is your era of Batman. I'm not trying to be like dismissive of that or anything. I'm just saying that I don't completely connect to that, you know? There's a, uh, there's a, st there, there's a tone and there's a style that that vintage of Batman was going for that it's just lost on me, I guess. So, anyway. Overall, though, this issue is a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. And it's not like this overall, it, this this general era of, of Batman is, is bad. It's just that, like I say, I don't completely connect to it. But it is nevertheless fun, and it shows us a more fallible, human, and grounded Batman. And so, there's a lot to be said just for that. But Anyway, I think that's pretty much it, at least as far as this story is concerned, though. Now, as to next week, uh, basically what I'm going to be doing is uh, continuing this Batman Mega Series that I've been working my way through lately, where I'm going to jump really far ahead in uh, uh, Batman's uh, publishing history. I'm going to be talking about a two-part storyline that I've come to really enjoy called The Crime Smith, Batman number 443 and 444, but... That's next week. Now, I think that's pretty much it for me this week, though. So, bye, everybody. I will see you next week. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play, 
Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demanzacor of Milan, Italy. Mm-hmm.